Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Broadcasting live on the Mix Radio Network. You're listening to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. All right, how you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for another episode of The Cutting Room Floor, a little podcast that I started to showcase indie entertainers from all walks. I like to say, if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, I want to hear from you. Uh, so a quick thank you, as we always do, to uh, The Wolf and uh, Car- Steve, uh, the wolf and uh, Michael Cardillo, who uh, The Wolf acts as my announcer there during my little jingle, uh, and Michael Cardillo composed that. Uh, you can listen to The Wolf and his dear wife Susan every Friday night right here on the Mix Radio Network from 8 o'clock until midnight. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can ask anybody that knows me. I'm on there all the time. My Twitter handle is at CuttingRoomMRB, or you can look me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash CuttingRoomMRB. Uh, so I'm back after a week's break. Uh, this is something that I, I typically do this time of year because, quite frankly, it's almost impossible to book a guest on Mother's Day, so I use it as an excuse to take the day off and actually go out and see my family uh, in Ottawa, which is about two and a half hours away or two hours away, depending on how heavy your foot is. Um, I also wanted to give a quick shout out because my wife and I, uh, more my wife mind you, but my, my dear wife and I attended the Romancing the Capital conference, which is a uh, conference for romance writers. Uh, I got a chance to meet some people face to face that I'd only been speaking to for the last couple of years online, namely Lena Pimentel and Jessica Subject. Um, there's also kinds of, all kinds of other really, really generous and, and talented people there. Uh, Catherine Fox and Eve Longley and uh, Viola Grace, and I know I'm forgetting a, a few of them, but uh, you know, we had a great old time. Very, very generous people, uh, very, very friendly, and uh, an extremely well-run event out in, uh, out in Stittsville there. So congrats to them for that. Um, so to kick things off, I've got, uh, I'm doing an hour and a half today, uh, so we're going to split this up into two shows, but uh, to kick this off, I've got another writer here for you who's a, a good friend of the show's. Uh, Jason McIntyre is back making his third appearance here, so he's part of my repeat offenders club. Uh, just to give you some information on him, uh, if you hadn't heard the first couple of interviews, uh, he's a number one uh, Kindle suspense author for uh, a piece that he put together called The Night Walkman. Uh, he's also written books called the, the, uh, On the Gathering Storm and uh, Dovetail Cove, which is a series. And the newest book in that series is called Zed, and he's here to talk about that and all kinds of other cool things that he's up to as well. So without further ado, the cutting room floor proudly welcomes back uh, our friend Jason McIntyre. Jason, how you doing? Fantastic, Casey. Thanks for having me uh, yet again in the Repeat Offenders. I, I'm, I'm validated somehow in my deep in my soul to be back for a third, third time. So yeah, you, you see, you got your hat trick, right? So that's it. That's it. Yep. The record, I think, is uh, the record. I think is nine. Uh, oh wow! I got so, a long ways you, to you know, go to, you know, to catch you're, up. You're getting up there, right? Yeah. I'm gonna have to start keeping a stre- spreadsheet for you guys to figure out how many <laughs> times you guys have been on. But with you, it's easy because you had both of them listed on your website. So oh, that's right. Yeah, I, I cheated, right? So uh, I guess we can just sort of hop right into it. Uh, you know, what is Zed about? Right? A very, very simply named book here. What do you got going with it? 
Zed is part of an unusual series, and series is kind of a loose word. There's 10 books, and they don't follow one after the other. They're, they, they follow out of chronological order, and the reason they're called Dovetail Cove is because they take place in a town on an island, and the name of that town is Dovetail Cove. All of the characters kind of flow in and out of each other's stories, but each book in the series uh, follows one individual story. So each, each book has its own beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, you're not left wanting or, or expecting the next book, though if you read more than one book, you get a more fleshed out, fuller look at Dovetail Cove and the craziness that's happening there. Zed is the, uh, I believe, uh, fourth book in the series to be released. It's not the fourth chronologically, but it does not matter if, if a person reads them out of order or just reads one or just reads two or whatever. Um, Zed is about a young man named Tom Mason who... He's from the mainland in the U.S., and he goes across to this Canadian island, uh, Dovetail Cove, and he gets a summer job working at a, a home for the mentally challenged. So he's in charge of looking after these guys and, you know, making their meals and, and doing all the things that, that that would entail in 1975. So it was a bit uh, a bit less progressive period in terms of looking at how we dealt with and, and viewed um mental the mentally challenged so it's kind of got that aspect to it it's also got an aspect of coming of age he's about 19 and he really wants to grow up to be a photographer so he's he's working this summer job to pay for a brand new camera that he wants so that he can go to go to college and uh and study to be you know the next big thing in the photography world now while he's there he meets a couple of crazy characters he meets um a really really bad boss i think you and i and probably everybody listening has had a really bad boss He's got one of the worst, and she is evil incarnate. And things go crazy, and there's something spooky and mysterious going on in the island that's been bubbling below the surface, and he discovers what it is. And that's all I'll say about Zed. No, and, uh, you know, this sounds to me like it falls in line with, with the mood from some of your other books, right? That, uh, you know, you've kind of got like a dark, brooding undercurrent, but the focus is really always on the characters, right? Uh, that's that's always the hope. Uh, it's it's really interesting to start writing a story with an idea of where I think it's going to go plot wise. And then I discover that the characters, because they are so deep and important to me, just to recognize how they kind of take over and they make decisions that I might not make because they're, they're being true to themselves. Almost they kind of come alive. And I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but I think you're right. And that's always the goal is to make the characters so vibrant that people want to follow them. And the, the horror or the suspense or the paranormal or any of that stuff, almost takes a backseat. I mean, it, it's it's still important, and uh, and there would be no story without those plot points and those interesting and macabre things, but I think you're right. I think the characters are the most important part, and I think that's what people remember about any well-written story, and not talking about mine specifically, but if I think back on great books that I've read, great movies that I've seen, uh, it's always, you remember the characters and what they do and how they charm you. Well, yeah, and some of them are so, you know, vivid that they, they, they become bigger than the works themselves, right? I mean, you know, everybody's got their own favorite. I mean, I'll ask you, what are some of your favorite movie characters that, that kind of hit a nerve with you? Well, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, this is kind of out of, maybe out of left field, but I was thinking of the Die Hard series for some reason. I mean, John McClane became so uh, so magical on his own with his one-liners. Like, he was he was one of the first one-liner deliverers in action movies in the in the 80s, I think. The Lethal Weapon series, probably Mel Gibson and and uh, Glover, but but uh, Bruce Willis and that character was so 
uh, enticing that they made all these other movies. Now, the movies got lesser and lesser, but it's still interesting to watch John McClane. Well, I, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll cite my, my brother-in-law for one thing that he says about that series. He goes, you know what, the first one was special in its own right because it was about a guy who was stuck in an awful situation and he was only there to cause as much trouble as he could for the terrorists until the rest of the cops could get there. Yeah. You know, there, there was nothing super cop about him or anything nope. like that. He was just an average guy that was stuck in a bad place. Yeah, and that made it uh, that made it more believable. Exactly what you just said made it more believable. And the believability kind of fell away as he kept finding himself in subsequent movies in these ridiculous situations. But, but the character was so magical that, you know, the theaters fill up. So do, do, you, uh, do you find yourself trying to make your characters grounded? And I, and I guess, uh, you, know, you know, what's your, your recipe for that? Um, I think I look at people that I know. I don't, I don't specifically sit down and write a character based on a person that I know, but I take attributes and I take things that have happened to people and I use those as the basis. So for example, Tom Mason, who's got a fairly generic sounding name because in the beginning, quite frankly, he starts out as a rather generic 19 year old college kid who's just kind of working a summer job. Uh, and he became more than that. And I, and I think it's probably because of some of the things that I introduced, like he goes through a bit of a gender identity crisis through the course of the book, which you're not probably going to see in a lot of mainstream uh, horror suspense type books. Um, so I think I pull a lot of those literary influences in and I, I like to do that. And, and to me, that was interesting for him because I've known people that have, that have had those issues throughout the course of my life. And I don't know how, how well I handled it. I, I shared it before I published with some of these people and I got, you know, I got thumbs up. Um, but to me, it was just an interesting thing to try and it made the character come alive in a way that I could not have predicted. Now, uh, you mentioned that you had, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said 10 books in this series? That's right, yeah. Well, there's there's nine that are completed. Uh, four are available now. The other, um, let's see, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm a word guy, not a numbers guy. So I think that there's five more, and I'm writing the 10th as, you know, as early or as late as this morning I was working on the 10th book. So what draws you back to this community? Like, uh, you know, what is it about it that keeps that keeps you going back? Well, the basis is really the promise that I made to myself that I would finish this story. Um, but it's taken me oh, 12 years to kind of get to this point since I started. And I, I take breaks from it and I go back, I go out and I write other things and then I come back to it. And I think it's the draw of, of what's going on, but it's also these characters. So like I said, nine books and the 10th I'm writing now, the 10th is kind of the first third of the 10th book is kind of like a, a gathering of heroes almost. It's like, um, it's like the literary equivalent of the Avengers. Like we're pulling together some of these classic characters going back through all nine books. Some that you might not expect that are going to reappear, reappear. Some that you're, you're hoping will reappear, make an appearance. And they're going to come together and they're going to be fighting this, um, this evil presence that's been lurking on the island over the course of a decade the 1970s, the, the first book starts in 1971, and this 10th book is set in the summer of 1980. So there's tons of great uh, historical allusions, political his history, um, pop culture references and things like of that nature. And all of these things kind of feed in together and create this fertile ground for all of these characters that I, as the writer, have loved. And hopefully some of the readers, hopefully lots of the readers have, have learned to love over the over the course of the other books. And now we get to kind of revisit them after a period of 10 years to see how they've matured, how they've suffered, 
what's happened to them and where they're at kind of coming together for this final showdown. And I, I mean, it's interesting that you choose the 70s because, you know, everybody thinks of, of the 60s as a period of, you know, social upheaval and stuff like that. But, uh, I mean, I was born in the 70s, so I can't say I remember a whole hell of a lot. But, but uh, I mean, t to me, that strikes me as a decade that, you know, everything was kind of tired and, you know, yucky, from, for lack of a better word, you know, with the end of Vietnam and people not really knowing what was coming next and, you know, it was a slow progressive cleanup in a lot of respects and, and you know, people were just trying to figure out what the new normals were. And I think, uh, I think you've kind of hit on the head of why I wanted to look at that period. Um, the first book that I wrote was kind of a one-off and I realized as I was finishing it and that I, when I discussed it with readers, that there was more to uh, the story and the island and the other characters in the town. But the first one that I wrote was kind of that same feeling. It was kind of that tired uh, after the, the blast of the 60s feeling. And I, I realized as I was writing that that was pervasive through all 10 books, uh, 71 right through 1980. And there's, there's, there is these political undertones. There's, there's talk of the Vietnam War and, and different things that kind of the books aren't about that, but they kind of make their appearance. And I think that what you just said about the t the fatigue during the 70s and the cleanup period, I think that actually seeps its way in to to the the books. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the whole notion of Watergate too, right? That, yeah, you know, there's a, yeah. there's a complete distrust of the government. Right? Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely, and and government and that distrust kind of, without ruining anything, kind of plays a big part in where where it's all headed. Okay, I don't want you to tip your hand too far, right? So um, I'm reminded actually of a, uh, a sort of a seminar that I went to where Kelly Armstrong was speaking. She's another prolific writer, and, and she was telling me, uh, or telling the group rather, about how she has to constantly, because she does like you do, she focuses on one character, and they don't necessarily, the story's interlocked, but there is, you know, some overlap, but she's constantly having to go back and do her own research on her own material. Uh, having gotten to this point, do you find yourself doing that to make sure that you're staying consistent with your with your vision in this? Absolutely. Um, when I'm firing on all cylinders, I'm able to write 2,000 words a day. So um, I I can do a first draft of a book in about two months for for a full size book, two to three months. Uh, this tenth book, because I'm going back and rereading nine other books that have have been written over the course of a decade and a bit you know, about 12, 13 years, I don't remember. I don't remember things. I don't remember this guy's left-handed. I don't remember um, I don't remember if we left off with this character being pregnant or not, or, you know, did, did that come to fruition? How did that happen? There's things that, there's things that I simply can't remember, and I go back, and then I discover whole new undertones that I remember writing the first time, but I'm not working that in properly now. I have to. I have to think harder about this. So instead of writing 2,000 words a day, I'm down to about 400 or 500 because I'm stopping every third sentence to to make sure that this this character is in line with how they were presented before, or this subplot is in, is in line with with where it needs to be. So yeah, it's it's slower going, but you know I'm actually really satisfied with what I've written so far. Um, I think it's going to be the explosive finale that. I've been thinking and, and dreaming of for a decade, uh, and I think readers are actually going to be really happy. Okay, so I'll ask you another question. I mean, this, this has got to be both challenging and frustrating for you at times, right? Have you, have you ever had a really, really good idea, but in the process of going back and doing your research, so you, you hit a brick wall and say, no, I can't use it? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the, the whole conceit of the entire series um, became one where each book uh, takes place in one period each year. So the first book is, is uh, summer of 71. The second book is fall of 72, I think. So they have little little snippets. Well, in suspense and thrillers, I mean, you need a you need a fast, tight timeline, right? That's part of the part of the draw is that these exciting times happen for our characters over a short period. Well, I've I've already done this over a decade, and I got to um, I got to 1979, and I had to figure out a way if I wanted to keep the conceit. I had to figure out a way to have things still bubbling, but also go into 1980 at the same time, and. In the process of doing that, I actually figured out a way to make it much better, and I won't ruin it, but um, there's something that actually works directly with that that will make the story better. And I'm excited for people to figure out how I actually figured that out. And, and you know, let's hope I can pull it off, but but right now, as I'm in the process of drafting the first uh, draft, uh, it looks really exciting as, as how it's going to play out. Now, I'll ask you something just purely out of interest, right? You know, you mentioned that you had to go back and read all of your own books again. Have you noticed anything about your own writing that has changed over the course of having done those? Well, I've gotten a hell of a lot better. Okay. I, well, I wouldn't that, say, good, you know, I wouldn't say start, I'm a master right? or anything, right. but, but seeing the progression of my own style and and just the quality and how much how much quicker I get to the point. I mean, there's when I was growing up, when I was a kid, there were these massive 1100 page Stephen King books for example I mean that he's the he's the king in our genre and uh there were there were parts and there are still parts of a Stephen King book that are you know a little bit uh overly fleshed out that maybe don't progress the story as much and so you kind of got used to this you know 800 900,000 page format of a story that maybe could have been 600 pages right. you know what I mean yeah. Yeah. and so so I go back and I'm like, oh man, I would have cut this. If I was if I was rewriting this today, ten years later, I would have cut this scene, or I would have taken the scene and it would have been two paragraphs, or something like that. So I I see. I see better ways to do things, and uh, and that's both gratifying and a bit horrifying as you look back and you think, oh man, did I actually put out that sentence? That's a little bit of a floral bouquet in that one. I don't I don't know if I should have written that. Well, okay, and I'll ask you, you know, are you, are you a fan of King's work yourself? And, you know, you, you brought him up. I am. Uh, I am, definitely. He was he was what I was reading during my formative years. So, I mean, comparisons that I get from readers that, you know, a certain book reads a bit like King, it's hugely flattering. It doesn't make any sense to me because it's not true. I mean, I don't, I don't put myself on that, uh, in that echelon. But uh, I, I do inadvertently emulate some of the things he does some of the books he's written he's written i i simply don't care for um some of his stuff particularly uh in the early years and then particularly in the last three or four years has, has been amazing life-changing kind of stories right. in my right. opinion there's been you know he's like almost any creative per person in my view hit and miss so what are some of your favorites among his stories um i really like more of his character-driven stuff like a Dolores Claiborne okay. or right. Gerald's Game. Those are kind of twin books that came out during my formative years. They're, and they're both shorter. They're right. both about 350 or 400 pages, so they're not these, these giant behemoths. I remember blowing through both of them in probably a three-day long weekend at the cabin kind of a thing. And uh, I remember, and I think I talked about this a few minutes ago just with you here, 
uh, I remember the characters. I remember certain scenes and I remember the feelings that I had, but I re- really remember the characters and how he drew out those characters. And to me, that was that's when he is writing his best. That's when most writers, I think, are writing their best is when they can create those characters that stay with you. And I'll throw out another one that was on the other end of the spectrum in terms of being long, but but uh, I mean, I remember not being able to put the Green Mile down when I read. That oh, the first exactly. Time, right? I I read the Green Mile uh, as it came out. It was it was put out in chat books. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know if you remember that, but so it would come out, and it was these little sixty, seventy, eighty page thin little things. They were so thin they didn't even have printing on the spine of some of them, and they were coming out either every week or every second week over one of the one summer when I was a kid. And man, I was, I'm totally with you. I was with that story and just chomping at the bit for each successive couple of chapters that came out. That was a really unique way to do that because that was really before the internet could make delivery of that easy. He was really the only author that could probably do that with economies of scale and all that. Well, yeah, and get away with it, right? I mean, a lot, yeah, exactly. a lot, a lot of people wouldn't have had the patience for that. I mean, I, I know that I waited, I, I knew that I was going to like that story because, you know, you know, deeply rooted in a time period that fascinates me. And I like stories about, you know, you know, the prison and the guard dynamics and things like that. And yep. I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to wait. I'm waiting until the whole thing comes yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, you know. and, it, and it was a testament to really how good he is. And I know he gets a lot of flack for being a bit of a cheap writer. You know, like he's, he's kind of, He's kind of got this reputation as being a bit of a B writer, right? But the testament to his ability is that he could put that those out every two weeks. I can't remember if it was every week or every two weeks, but he could put each of those out. And by the end, it all made sense. He didn't go back and yeah. fix chapter two. No, no. So that it could fit in with something that he kind of came up with, you know, on chapter 15. And so to me, that that just shows his mastery of storytelling, whether he's whether he's the best and literate, most literate writer, I don't know, that can be debated. But in terms of storytelling, there's a reason that he's so popular. Well, yeah, but I mean, you, you got to argue that people's appetites are different, right? That, uh, I mean, and he's written more than just horror stories, too. Uh, you know, you know between, yeah. between the Shawshank Redemption and, and the Green Mile and, you know, a bunch of other things, that, you know, these weren't horror stories. These were, yeah. you know, characters. Ale- 11 um, did you did you read that or see the miniseries? No, I didn't, no, no. Both are amazing. Both are very, very good. Now, I would actually argue that um, the producer of that miniseries probably saw the seeds of something even greater than the book itself. The book, I would say, probably, probably sags a little in the middle, but it's got great beginning and ending, which... Endings are hit or miss with, with King, in my opinion. But the miniseries takes all the best attributes of that book and really delves into it over the, the course of, I think it's eight episodes or ten episodes, I'm, and does just a masterful job of telling that. Uh, I, I love them both. I'm, no, I'm going to have to look that up. You gave yeah. me something to, to hunt down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in terms of short stories, right, um, I know that recently you had one uh, published called One Hour's Reprieve. Is that right? Yes, yeah. How'd that go? That is, in my opinion, one of my most successful stories, not in terms of how many people read it, not in terms of how many people told me they liked it, in terms of my own satisfaction with how a story goes. I've written, I've written probably about 30 short stories that I can say I would share. And, and to be honest, some short stories are, are not good and they don't leave the house. Uh, <laughs> but One Hour's Reprieve, I would say, is one of my top two. The other, the other best story that I feel that I've written is one called... Um, through the Transom Light, and both stories kind of deal with parents and children. Uh, through the Transom Light is kind of a, a youngish father and his 
in his young baby daughter. And then um, one hour's reprieve is a, is a mom and her grown or almost grown daughter. And I would say that very few times do you feel as a creative person that you really hit your stride. I think I hit my stride with both of those as st short stories. I'm really proud of both of those. If anyone's listening and wants to see uh, when I feel like I've done my best work, look up those two short, short stories, please. And you get kind of a high when that happens, right? Like I'll admit to that when I'm, you know, doing the show that every once in a while you, you know, it just flows and you, you know everybody yep. feels comfortable and you know yep. the, the guest is laughing and you know you walk away energized from it. Yeah, right? you you just feel like oh I nailed that and you can float on that high for quite a while. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know those have a funny way of bringing you back up when you're not feeling so good too. <laughs> Absolutely, because there's all kinds of things as creative people and 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 you probably know this too. There's all kinds of things in this world that will try to knock you down, whether you're writing, whether you're penning a, a screenplay whether you're doing a podcast, whether you're painting, whether you're singing, there's all kinds of, and I don't mean like people don't like what you do, but there's, there's challenges. There's process oriented things that's that want to stop you from getting your work out there or doing what you do. There's just all kinds of things. So to have that internally generated feeling of, Oh geez, you know, I nailed that. I nailed that, that, that can surpass so many of those negative or those hurdles that we run into, I think, as creative people. But I mean, I think you hit it on the head too, in the sense that that uh, I mean, you have a healthy attitude from the sounds of things in terms of taking a break once in a while. That uh, I, I, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, right? That that uh, you know, sometimes you need to take a step back in order to be able to move forward. Yeah, and I think too. I mean, I I approached the self-publishing and the indie publishing world with kind of a realistic outlook. Uh, I knew that I wasn't going to get rich selling books. I knew that. I still know that. I'm okay with that. So I don't rush product out. And I don't even like calling it product, to be honest. Uh, that comes from my years in marketing and communications. But um, essentially, it is. It is a product that, that people will buy or will consume in some way. But um, I think knowing that the, the fruits of your labor are the most important thing, kind of kind of temper you to take a step back and look at it real first of all realistically and secondly well am i ready to write book eight of a dovetail cove series or whatever series it is or do i need to give it a couple of years or 18 months or something and write something else totally different to take my mind out of that world try something new re recharge the batteries or as i've done the last year i took 10 months out of the last 14 off from writing entirely which for me was a big decision and kind of painful, uh, but I think it actually made the work better as I came back to it. Uh, Jason, I'm just going to take a quick pause here because I do have my next guest on the line. Uh, Michael, are you there? Yes, I am. All right, that's a much clearer connection than we had a couple of weeks ago. Eh? I'm back hey. in L.A., baby. How you doing, buddy? Doing great. Okay, so I just wanted to introduce you, uh, Michael, to uh, Jason McIntyre, who's a writer friend of mine. Uh, he's uh, in the process of uh, launching, or it is out, eh, Jason? Zed is out for people? Zed is out, yeah, it came out late last year. Late last Hi, Michael. year. Okay. So, hey, how's it going? Congratulations. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. And uh, Jason, just so that you know, Michael David Lynch is also uh, part of the Repeat Offenders Club, and uh, when I had him on a couple of weeks ago, very briefly, he was trying to squeeze in a few minutes to talk to me after his film had just won an award. So we're going to be talking wow. about we're going to be talking about Dependence Day. That's doing really well on the uh, festival circuit there. Nice. Congratulations to you, Michael. 
Thank you, man. I'm excited. We, we got another screening uh, at Santa Cruz coming up June 3rd. And uh, I was hoping to be able to announce our other screening, but, but they haven't gone public yet. So we, we have another announcement that should be coming very soon. So, you know, got to keep the train moving, right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, one last question for you, and then I'm, I'm going to have to let you go. But uh, where can people go to learn more about uh, your work or buy copies of your books and all that stuff? Well, first of all, thanks for having me again, Casey. And uh, all the repeat offenders, we're going to have to do drinks or something someday. That's going to be a pretty darn long list. I, you know, if you, if you take a look at my list on Twitter there, you we'll can just, a, we'll take over a, show more a than really once, big but... pub in Montreal somewhere or something. That's what we'll do. So people can find me at www.thefarthestreaches.com. Uh, you can link off to Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can go to Amazon. You can go to the iBook store or iTunes and just type in Jason McIntyre and my stuff will pop up. There's lots of free stuff. If you're not sure, if you don't want to spend $4.99 or $2.99 on a, on a full-length novel, download a free short story. See if you like my style. Um, get in touch with me. Tweet me at Jason C. McIntyre uh, or grab me on Facebook and just say, hey, I love talking to readers. I, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me that I've created anything that, that resonates with people. And if it does, even if you just want to tell me, you know, I, I hated it. I'd prefer you didn't. But if you if you want to just chat about stuff, get in touch with me. I love to do it with readers. Thanks well, so much, Casey. Th- th- thanks a lot, Jason. We'll definitely be in touch soon, all right? All right. Thanks, man. Okay, great. So, uh, Michael, what we're going to do is we're just going to take our little uh, mid-show break here. I'm going to play the Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up. And I discovered a really cool band out of Ogden, Utah called the Highway Thieves. Uh, th- I'm trying to get them on my show. These guys, trust me, they sound really good. So... Uh, We're going to play a song by them called uh, Never Too Late for Love, and then we're going to be back to talk with Michael David Lynch. All right? All right. Michael, if you could just mute up, and then uh, we'll be right back, all right? Okay. It's the Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up with your host, Jason Hadley. Melissa Rivers won her malpractice suit against the clinic responsible for the death of her mother and legendary comedian Joan Rivers. The Joan Rivers settlement is said will change the face of practices within doctors' offices, much the way doctors had to change the settlement of practice faces on Joan Rivers. With rumors circulating she may have regretted becoming a woman, Caitlyn Jenner confirms she has no plans to become a man. Rosie O'Donnell seems to be letting it happen naturally. Cops responded immediately to the home of Chris Brown after angry neighbors asked him to stop doing donuts in his ATV. Imagine how excited the cops were being asked to take care of some donuts. Former Full House child actor Mary-Kate Olsen is these days expecting a child of her very own. Like anything else that's ever been in her stomach, Olsen is expected to deliver the baby orally. And that's the Hollywood Rock and Wrap-Up. Follow us on Twitter at Rock and Wrap Up.
gotta get them on my show uh okay this uh, the highway thieves is the name of that group uh, you can find them on reverb nation again they're out of ogden utah uh i want to give a quick thank you to the banyan collective uh that you can find at the banyancollective.com this is another podcast where they promote uh local indie musicians and things like that uh, for turning me on to these guys i really hope to be if that's any indication of the kind of music that they're endorsing then i want to do some more work with the banyan collective so uh michael what'd you think of that I was just interesting. Cool music, man. I'm sure. Oh, Ruby. It's pretty cool, huh? All right. So, uh, Michael David Lynch is uh, back with us. Uh, again, he's been on the show twice before, so like uh, Jason, he's making his third appearance. Um, originally out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, but has worked on huge films out of the studio system, a few of which I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen called uh, Inception and Iron Man 2 and so many others that, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible to name them all. But he made his own mark uh, producing films like... Uh, uh, 
dropping the thing with Sarah, and uh, he's also got two other feature films uh, that have been picking up awards recently. Uh, one of which was a couple of weeks ago uh, when he was fresh off the awards circuit down in Texas, and he's here to talk about Dependence Day and a couple of other things as well. Uh, so without further ado, the cutting room floor proudly welcomes back Michael David Lynch. Hey, thanks for having me on, Casey. I'm, I'm glad to be on a good connection. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I mean that was kind of cool because you have know, getting a little bit of a live field report from you when you were down there. That was kind of neat, right? So yeah, yeah, fresh off the win. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it's always. It's always. It always feels good to get recognized. I mean, obviously, every every festival, you know, there's so many good films, and it's, you know, it's all subjective, and it's. You know, it, it, it's always hard to, you know, even even a lot of the festivals talk about they hate they hate giving awards because, you know, they want to give everyone an award because they were selected. But it's still nice to be honored and, and uh, you know, you don't get too big ahead about it. You know, it, it just you know, obviously helps with the marketing. And that, that's the great thing, I think, about awards when you have a film like Dependence Day that doesn't have name actors. It's it's nice to, you know, we, you know, our first big award was at our world premiere at Cinequest. And, you know, Cinequest is a phenomenal film festival. And. I saw so many amazing movies there. Um, you know, I, I became really good friends with uh, Lee Slimmer, who, who directed Cree Moria, and, and uh, Rocco, who directed Love Is All You Need. And uh, uh, there was uh, Doug Archibald and Kristen Archibald, who did uh, Love You Both. There was like, you know, there's so many good movies that, that screened there. I got to know Lena, who, who was in the movie The Promise Band, which was a documentary. So it's like when, you, when you're at a festival like Cinequest, you you feel you like I felt like the graduating class of 2016. It was like I was so proud to be amongst everybody, <laughs> and then to win an award amongst them, you just feel that much like man, you know. And 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 a lot of those films I just named, they all won they all won awards as well at Cinequest. So you know, I just it because you, know, you win an award at a festival where like you know there's no good films there, it doesn't really feel like you won anything, you know. Kind of felt like you got a special thanks ribbon or whatever. So um, I can't talk enough about Cinequest. If, if anyone has never been, um, they really know how to program amazing content there, and they really focus on, you know, great storytelling. And, and where, um, where is Cinequest out of? It, they're in San Jose. Okay. Uh, so the Silicon Valley, and, uh, you know, uh, Wozniak is actually, I think, on their board. Um, but, you know, uh, Hofton and Kathleen and Michael Rabel, uh they, they, they kind of are, you know, Kathleen Hofton are the two founders, and then Michael Rabel is the programming director. Um, so at least they, got, they got a great team. They, they, this was year 26 for Cinequest. So that, that, that's, uh, I mean, that's at least closer for you, right? So you, you probably drive that, right? Yeah, it's five and a half hours. Okay, well, that's so, not too bad, right? Yeah, too bad. Yeah, we drove it. And then we even actually rented a, a 15 passenger bus and, and, and drove a bunch of our cast and, and some of our you know friends up <laughs> okay, well, to uh, kind of make an extra party out of it. No, and it's nice that you can do that, right? Because uh, I, I, I've heard situations where, where filmmakers get invited to these things and even win awards, but they just you know physically can't get across the country or you know even to other countries to, to actually pick these things up. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, fun fact, uh, you know, myself and Joe Burke and Josh Damon and David August, you know, Joe Burke, Josh Damon, and David August are all actors in the movie. Um, and, the, and the guys who made my, my logo, we push trains, uh, Ryan Urban and Brad Stark. We had a lot of Columbia college uh, alumni cause I'm, I'm from Columbia college, Chicago is where I went to film school. And, uh, we actually threw a big Columbia college, Chicago parties, you know, so Columbia came in and helped sponsor some parties and, you know, stuff like that for independent filmmakers when you don't have, you know, a lot of, you know, 
a lot of scratch. It's nice to be able to have, you know, someone kind of come in and do a little sponsorship to, to do a party so you can help raise more awareness, you know? So, um, you know, but, but you have to help create those opportunities the way like that you and I communicate and have right. kept in touch. Right. You know, a lot of people think like, Oh, it just falls into plates. Like, well, no, it's, it's almost like a chess game. It is kind of like you carefully water your different, you know, connections and contacts and you keep in touch. And, and when the time is ripe, you know, then all of a sudden it's easy for people to want to help because they've already kind of been a part of a part of the watering process. <laughs> oh, and that's uh, that's an interesting metaphor. I'm going to find myself using that. I can tell you. Uh, um, but you know, to take a step back here, uh, when I did have you on two weeks ago, you were in Texas, right? Yes, I was in Texas. So, so what festival were you at in Texas, and and what was the uh, the uh, award that you picked up there? So. Um, in, in so Cinequest was the audience award, uh, and Texas was Hill Country, and it was the best actress award. So Benita Robledo picked up best actress, um, and uh, Hill Country, um, we you know they they uh, I believe they it's long <laughs> they had heard about Dependence Day because we got into Cinequest, um, so they reached out to to me and asked us if we would you know kindly uh, you know submit the film to see if they'd consider it. And, and luckily, they loved it. Um, funny fact, they didn't know that Benita was from Texas because she's actually from Texas because um, they're big into their, you know, you know obviously their local community. Um, and uh, Hill, Hill Country, uh, it's in Fredericksburg. So it's a, a small, like, uh, I think they, they say it was like, it's like a German kind of cutesy little small town in Texas that actually, it's called Hill Country, because it looks like like Napa Valley is it looks like a wine country. There's a lot of wine there, which I didn't know. Um, so it's like a lot of people will go there to retire in Fredericksburg. So the, the audiences were, where I would say you know they, there were some young people live there too, but it was maybe like 50, uh, 55 and up, or maybe sixty five and up. And it was actually fun to see some of these you know other audiences really you know enjoy uh, enjoy my comedy. <laughs> So uh, let's take a step back again, then. Uh, you know about Dependence Day. You know what are you doing with this project? What's it about? So Dependence Day uh, is a hilarious, heartfelt, authentic relationship comedy about the adventures of being in love and making it work. Uh, and uh, Cam, and, and played I'm gonna, by I'm gonna Joe stop, Burke. I'm going to stop sure. you right there. That kiddies is how you put an elevator pitch together, just like that. That that. <laughs> you like that? Per, 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 perfect line there. Thank you. Uh, but, it, you know, it, luckily it's accurate. It's a very accurate description of, of what our film is. And, uh, you know, uh, Joe Burke, who plays Cam, uh, gets claimed as a dependent by Alice, played by Benita Robledo, uh, on their taxes in the opening accounting scene. Um, and then, therefore, you know, that's the that's the thrust that sends us into our story of, you know, can Cam rise to the occasion and, and be the quote-unquote man? Uh, in a world where, you know, in this movie, all the bosses, you know, are women and women are kind of in charge and, and Cam's kind of that man child. So, uh, you know, it was kind of a commentary on, on what I saw happening in my everyday life. I saw a lot of, you know, people I know, they're now stay at home dads and, and their and their women are working because they're making more money. Um, and I didn't think that was being accurately portrayed in cinema. And, and I thought I would, you know, do my turn at showing it, but also showing that, you know, the funny side of it. Um, and it's and it's more than just that too, because it's it's also a love story. There's there's a lot of layers. Uh, Dependence Day is a is a beautiful onion that is fun to peel. 
Uh, now, did you actually write and direct this yourself? Or did you... I, I did. Yeah. I wrote and directed okay. it, and uh, I, I produced it, um, and I, I shot it and edited. This is like my baby, man. <laughs> now, uh, in terms of the... Uh, I understand that this was your first feature film, right? But you've done a lot of other shorts, but this was your first feature, right? This is my first feature film as a director. Okay, all right. Uh, I, I, it's the seventh as a as a producer, and then if you count Victor Walk, which is going to have its world premiere soon, my documentary feature, then my documentary feature would be like number two as a director and number eight as a as a producer. But in a way, Victor Walk and Independence Day feel like they're twins because they kind of like you know Independence Day. You know, we world premiered in March, and Victor Walk is is going to be screening within the next couple months. Um, so you know they're they're almost back to back. <laughs> well, back to back, I, I would be reluctant to call them twins. I'm going to ask you a few questions about Victor Walk a little bit later, but uh, I mean, these, yeah, they're not they, twins. They're, they're not identical twins. They're no, fraternal. Yeah, you're, yeah, I mean, you're dealing with diametrically opposed subject matter with these two things, right? Yeah, Victor Walk's completely different than Independence Day or Burden, my short film that I was on the phone, you know, my sci-fi short that, that I that's you know, right. we talked about years ago. Yeah, that's um, the one that uh, wasn't that the one that you did where, where Peter Cullen was a voice in that, or yeah, yeah, Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime. You know, he was uh, he did he laid down uh, not only voice work for the short but also for the trailer of the short. He was, Montreal, I loved working with Montreal Peter. boy, no less, right? Yeah, he's Canadian, man. Peter Cullen's hundred percent Canadian. Well, he's from Montreal. He's from my backyard, right? So yeah, backyard. So um, I I know that you've worked with. Uh, Benita before, right? That, that uh, but but how did you actually go about casting uh, Dependence Day? Like, did you issue an open call, or was it people that you were familiar with? Uh, I guess how did that part of it happen? Well, uh, I met Benita through a mutual friend of mine, Ali O'Neill and, and Luke Cahill. Um, they're wonderful people. Actually, fun fact: Luke makes an appearance in the movie. Uh, he also plays some music in the movie uh, and some background. And uh, he actually, his band has a song in the film. And he was the the colorist of the film. So as the director and cinematographer, you know, you work with a colorist to, you know, tweak the image. And Luke was also the colorist of Dependence Day. He did a phenomenal job. Um, so I was at their house for uh, New Year's Eve, and that's where I met Benita for the first time. And we kind of connected, and uh, and then uh, I was talking with actually both Benita Robledo and Shannon Lasio, which I know Shannon's been on your show because I think I connected with you her a long time ago. Yeah, I, um, I yeah I remember that now that you mentioned it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, because I think I had her on the phone. Maybe she was talking about Grave Dawn. But, you know, Shannon, she's been on True Blood and a lot of a lot of you know the OC and a lot of other stuff. So yeah. I'd worked with Shannon a lot in other projects, and so I was kind of talking to both Shannon and Benita about. Trying, I was trying to find a project that I could develop with with an actor, <laughs> where we could have really fun exploring certain ideas. And, and and the idea, the base of it was: look what the Duplass brothers are doing. They are are making movies with no money. And and here I am. I've you know at this time I'd produced six features. I've you know I did my my short. And I had all this under my belt, and I was like, well, what am I waiting for? I was like, maybe I shouldn't be waiting for like a you know millions of dollars to make a movie. What would you know? What would I do uh, if if I'm going to do a mumblecore film? Like, what would a Lynch mumblecore film look like? And uh, uh, and because I'd also produced this thing with Sarah, and I'd produced Between Us with Julia Stiles and Tay Diggs, since I'd produced these other films, you know, uh, that were kind of rom com or or rom or or, or dramedies. Um, I just said, okay, well, what you know, since that those are cheaper to make. 
uh, what would what would mine look like? And that was the base idea. So I was talking to Shannon, talking to Benita, um, developing ideas. Uh, and then a friend of mine just said to me, the only reason I hadn't directed something was because I didn't have anything to believe in. And once I asked me to believe in, I'll make it happen. The minute he said that, I was flying to Michigan and I wrote the script. Um, I wrote a short script, which I don't want to give the, the name of the short script because it kind of gives away too much information. Okay. But at the Q&As, I can. At the Q&As, I can say it. But I wrote a short script. Uh, uh, casted Benita, had other actors involved, and then one actor's agent called me because the name of the script and said that their their actor couldn't be involved because they thought the name of the script was too inappropriate. Um, and then I called my friend Josh Damon, who also plays Josh in the in the script when he's writing the movie. And uh, Josh, I said, Josh, you know who who do, who who, do, who would be okay being known as this uh, this character? And he goes, Joe Burke. Joe Burke has no problem. So I brought Joe Burke in for us into my kitchen with with Benita for a screen test. It was the first time they both actually saw the script. They hadn't seen the script. Benita just said yes because she wanted to work with me. Uh, Joe Burke wanted to, you know, have the opportunity. Um, he then Joe Burke looked at me after he saw the script and he goes, "Do you mind? It was a fifteen page script. Do you mind if I improv off of this?" And I said, "Sure." Uh, and then I shot with my iPhone that first take and it ended up being 20 minute take. And then as soon as we cut, he was like, oh, obviously it can't be that long. It needs to be shorter. And I said, maybe not, maybe it's not a short, maybe it's a web series, maybe it's a feature. So then it kind of, from there, we never actually shot the short. We just, you know, started workshopping. I started workshopping with Benita and Joe. We spent like two months together finding the characters, working the characters and, and then uh, we jumped into making, you know, two months. Two months after that, we were, we shot the feature. Did uh, it's interesting how you, you start off with one idea, and then uh, I mean, Jason has talked about this a few times. That things kind of take on a life of their own, right? That... Well, when I saw what Joe Burke was giving, you know, because like I said, I'd had Benita cast. When I saw like the firecracker that he was, I was like, man, he's got a lot to give, and he's just he's going to completely open up and give me you know, whatever, whatever I need. And he's, he's going to be vulnerable and he's not going to, you know, hide something from me. Cause if you hide something from the director, you're hiding it from the audience. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, you know, it, it was, it was seen and, and what was great about his chemistry with Benita, because, you know, the two have a magical chemistry is the fact that, you know, I, I think they talk about it with the ride along with the, you know, Kevin Hart playing the funny guy and, and Ice T being the straight man. As you know, Benita's our straight man. She's able to like not break. You know, if you were to watch that first take I did of them, you know, I'm laughing my I'm breaking takes, Joe's breaking takes because he's making himself laugh and, and she she was able to keep it together. Which is very important when you don't have a lot of time to shoot something and if if you get something great kind of you know, great moment to not have that moment ruined. Um, and, they, and, and you really can see that, you know, really feel, well, when you watch the movie, um, there's a, there's a definitely magic that's there, uh, between the characters, Alice and Cam. Uh, I just want to take a, a quick pause here, Michael. We're going to do a couple more minutes with you, but I, I do have my last guest of the day. Sydney Harris is dialing in from Paris, France. Uh, Sydney, are you there? Hi. Hey, hey, it's Casey. How you doing? 
Hi, Casey. I'm doing great. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, so I'll be with you in just a couple of minutes. We're just uh, finishing up with Michael David Lynch here, all right? So uh, he's uh, done a... Uh, actually, this is probably a good connection for you because you have a, a background in sketch and stand-up too, don't you? I do, yeah, I do. So. I'm at the Groundlings right now, and I did UCB. And uh, Michael David Lynch here is uh, uh, doing very well on the uh, festival circuit with a uh, romantic comedy that he's uh, written and directed called Dependence Day, so we were just talking about that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, you can check out the trailer at dependenceday.com. It's, 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 IndieWire called it hilarious, and we've been getting great reviews. Uh, oh, I love funny. Uh, I, yeah. I also want to get in a quick mention for you, uh, Michael, for your uh, your Victor Walk documentary. This is uh, taps into uh, something very serious, but also another one of your interests in terms of professional hockey, right? Yes. So uh, Victor Walk is, you could say, my second feature film, but my first uh, feature documentary as a director. Um, and uh, it, it follows Theo Fleury, who, you know... Uh, Everyone in Canada knows, but you know the rest of the world that you know who doesn't. He, uh, you know, he won a Stanley Cup in 1989 with the Calgary Flames, and he won a gold medal in 2002 for Canada after it had been a 50-year drought for them getting a you know gold in the Olympics. Uh, and but he was recently came out that he was sexually abused by his coach when he was younger, um, and he decided to do a Victor Walk, which is also the name of the documentary Victor Walk. From Toronto to Ottawa, which is 250 miles in 10 days. So 25 miles a day we walked to, to bring awareness to the subject. So I walked backwards filming him walking forwards. And, and people would walk up and tell him their story, putting faces um, and stories, the epidemic of child sexual abuse. And even though this subject is a very hard subject to talk about, because sometimes when you bring it up, you know, people don't want to talk about it. Some people will, will get confrontational with me right away, like, oh, I don't want to hear about that. You just ruined my day. And that's why we made the film, is to end the stigma so that people can talk about it, because a lot of people are quiet because of the shame. You know, you know, we, we started shooting this documentary three years ago. And, you know, three years ago, and I started working with Theo Fleury, you know, because I wrote a, a, a script about his life. I want to say even even uh, back in in 2011, and back in 2011 when I wrote um, wrote a script about him, you know, people were telling me, "Why would you write something about that?" You know, Ooh, and then Jerry Sandusky happened, and people were like, "Oh, it's trendy," and it's like, "It's not trendy. This is just something that, yeah, yeah, that should yeah. be talked about." Yeah, that, and with the to, to, you know to, to, Bill Cosby allegations, it's like the, 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 the things keep steamrolling. Sorry, go ahead, Casey. Yeah, that, 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 I mean, you can't really. I mean, it's almost. I mean, it is inappropriate to say it was trendy to talk about that now. I mean, these are, you know, horrific incidents that, you know, mark people for life, right? But, uh, and that's the thing. And, and, and the biggest thing I feel like I learned from doing the Victor Walk, because I walked it myself, you know, as well, and, and hearing the stories and having living with this film for three years and even working with Theo since back in 2011, is it doesn't matter. It, you know, it might not be sexual abuse. That's trauma for someone in their childhood, but childhood trauma. You know, how that shapes people through their adolescence and into their adult lives and how we choose to understand our trauma so that we can move forward. And that's that's a, I think that's a big thing is that, you know, trauma shapes everyone. And, and um, you know, that's a big part of the documentary is, is helping people understand and, and encouraging healing because a lot of people want justice. And, I'll, and obviously the documentary talks about wanting to have, you know, better justice and stiffer laws in, in Canada. Because, you know, in the United States, 45 of our states, there's a Jessica's law where, you know, if, you know, if you, you know, someone molests anybody under 12 years old, it's 25-year minimum sentencing and, and right. uh, 
you know, GPS monitoring for life. Um, you know, and in Canada, there's a lot of cases that only get two years. And there are a couple other, you know, and five states in the, in the United States that are still don't have, haven't adopted Jessica's law yet. So, um, you know, it's, it's justice, as we all know, can't, you can't always guarantee you're going to get justice, but you can heal yourself. And that's why the documentary, you know, it's eye-opening, it's empowering, it's inspiring, it's uplifting. We, we really tried hard not to make this documentary feel depressing um, because then people aren't going to watch it. And now that doesn't mean we don't, you know, we, we, we still are honest with the film. There's, there's definitely moments that you're going to hear someone's story and you're going to cry, but, we're all, but, but then you get to see the, the bright, you know, side of the film because the message of the film too is, well, you know, if the first half of your life you threw away, you know, because like Theo Fleury, for people that don't know, it's like, man, he made, you know, over 50 million in his career and, you know, um, you know, drugs and alcohol because he didn't know how to cope with his trauma, you know, and gambling. It's all in his book, you know, Playing with Fire um, as well. You know, in our, in our doc, obviously, the first 10 minutes, people that don't know Theo, we give we give everyone in the world a, an update of who he is before we jump into the, the walk, of course. Um but, you know, he lost a lot, and it's not just him. It's, you know, you know he, him being a brave hockey player, I think, is also what makes this documentary different than others, is it gives a, it gave a lot of men comfort they can come forward for their abuse, too, not just women, uh, and that their manhood isn't at risk. Um, and I think that was one of the big things of, of why when Theo's coming forward, um, opposed to when, you know, when some other you know, celebrities have come forward, why I think it's resonating with a lot of people and then they're coming forward for the first time in 40 years or 15 years. And that's what you'll see in the documentary. You'll see people who are saying this is the first time that they've come out in, you know, 15, 30, 40 years. And they're finally getting this, this you know, weight off. And, uh, you know, when the Bill Cosby allegations happen and I see people victim shaming and saying, why didn't they come out sooner? It's like, man, I've been making a documentary for three years all about how it's so difficult for people to come forward because of the shame. Um, uh, Michael, sorry I'm about. sorry to do this to you, but we really do have to tie this up. So I, I want to make sure that we get in a good solid plug. Where can people go to uh, learn more about the screenings that you may have coming up for Dependence Day or Victor Walker or any of your past catalog there? Where can people go uh, to learn more about you? Absolutely. So DependenceDay.com, uh, which is D-E-P-E-N-D. Oh, shoot. I can't even, <laughs> can't even spell my own new movie right now. Um, uh, uh, dependence, uh, like dependent, not, not like independence day, um, dependence day.com, uh, facebook.com slash dependent day, uh, Instagram at dependence day, Twitter at dependence day. Uh, and then for Victor walk would be Victor walk doc as in doc.com. So Victor walk doc.com and facebook.com slash victorwalkdoc and at instagram and twitter it's at victorwalkdoc and, so uh, and, yeah, and your, your production company very quickly i'll mention is uh is, is we push trains right correct we push trains and uh i need to update my we push train site but yeah we push trains.com and uh we're also at twitter at we push trains and we push trains we're is very very excited to have dependence day and victor walk be its first two you know, major productions that it's spearheaded. So okay. we're very excited about that. So uh, again, Michael, thanks a lot for your patience and thanks for coming back. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely be in touch again soon. All right. Oh, thank you very much, Casey. Take care and have fun, Sydney. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you as well.
Okay, great. So uh, what we're going to do, we've just been talking with Michael David Lynch due to the file sizes. I'm just going to toggle off briefly, very quickly. Uh, Sydney, please don't hang up or anything. We're just going to start up a brand new episode right away and we're going to be back to talk with Sydney Harris. Uh, so on behalf of my guests, uh, Michael David Lynch and Jason McIntyre, you've been listening to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. And again, I'm going to be right back in two seconds uh, with a, uh, an episode of Sydney, uh, Sydney Harris here. So until then, cut, print, wrap, and I am... Done. That was another edition of The Cutting Room Floor with your host, Casey Ryan. Follow Casey on Twitter at Cutting Room MRB and on Facebook, The Cutting Room Floor. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.